Stone Chats, Small Talks About Homeschooling, presented by Wildwood Curriculum, a Charlotte Mason education for all. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Stone Chats, the podcast of Wildwood Curriculum. I'm Jennifer Gaiman. I'm Marjorie Lang. And I'm Miriam Herr. One question that we see asked a lot is, how do I teach my child to read? Charlotte Mason did have a section in her book, Home Education, about one way to teach reading, but it isn't prescriptive. By that, I mean that it's an example of one way that we can teach it, but it's not the only way, and it's not core to her method. Today, we have Melissa Nielsen from Waldorf Essentials joining us to talk about teaching your child to read. Melissa comes from a Waldorf background, but her method of teaching reading is simple, practical, and multi-sensory, and can be successfully used to teach most children without buying an expensive curriculum. Welcome here, Melissa. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background for our listeners who, who don't know who you are. Sure. So I'm Melissa Nielsen. I own Waldorf Essentials. I'm a homeschooling mom of five children. I've graduated three. I have two left at home, a seventh grader and a second grader. I have dyslexia myself. So um, when I came to Waldorf and knew I was going to be teaching my children, I was very dialed in and very interested in how this was going to work. Even though I have dyslexia, I learned to read very young, like around five. And I do think that actually handicapped or masked a lot of what was going on with my dyslexia as I got older. When my kids were, you know, getting ready for school age, I really was in love with Waldorf and I, there were not a lot of curriculum options out there. So I just sort of dug in, read Steiner's work myself and um, started writing our own curriculum. We have been in business for about um, 14 years, and I've been actually working with families longer than that. I was um, have a midwifery background and a lactation consulting background, so I've been working with families in a coaching capacity for a long time, but um, this is like the homeschooling aspect of it started probably around 16 years ago, and um, from there, it grew into... Um, you know, we write, we write homeschool curriculum, we coach families on um, the Waldorf method. And, and also my husband and I are parent and family coaches. So we actually coach on other things. We coach on families that are trying to run a business and homeschool at the same time. So our, our field is broadening. It's more than just Waldorf essentials and, um, you know, sort of, sort of as we're growing here. Um, what do you want me to start with? What, do you want me to just talk about how we teach reading? Or do you want to ask me questions? Tell me what you'd like me to do. Let's first do an overview of how do you teach reading? What is your method to, to teach? And how, Great. When you're teaching the other homeschooling moms, what do you tell them? Sure. I think that's a great question. So the foundation of the method that I am using is, is very Waldorf centered. So in, in the Waldorf curriculum, we introduce the letters, not sequentially. We introduce the letters and we introduce them with a story. And um, from that story, the letter is born. The child then will learn the sound of the letter, the shape of the letter. And in a school setting, the first grade, like their, their goal is not reading for the first grade. But in a home setting, my goal is reading for first grade. So these are children that are seven or nearly seven, and they are ready. They're hungry and they're ready. They're seeing their peers that are already reading. They might have an older sibling that's already reading. So at this point, mom is often like, 
holding them off until they can get to that first grade space. But they're, they're generally very ready at that point. And, you know, I have, um, out of my five children, my second child, he was not seven when we started first grade. He, he has a March birthday. And so I just kind of played around a bit. He had zero interest in any letters or anything. So we just sort of told stories. And then when he turned seven, he turned to my husband and said, my mom won't teach me how to read. And my husband said, oh, yes, she will. <laughs> Let's get started right now. And he read very quickly because he was ready. He was ready and he was very hungry at the point. So we sort of introduced things, introduced the letters and the sounds through story. My method diverts a little bit from the way they would do it in the schools in that I, because it is the goal of first grade for me, it is the goal of um, first grade for all of the families that I work with, we are doing much more uh, review weekly, daily review, and we focus very much on what we're doing every single day. So um, because that is the focus of what, how I teach our, our families, we, we are doing like daily review every single day. And that's really what I think is the most important piece. When a parent comes to me and says, my child is just not picking up on reading, I say, well, talk to me about what you're doing. Because often it's like, oh, well, here and there we're reading. I will ask a parent that's struggling Tell me about your process because most of the time mom might be spending five minutes here, five minutes there and not be, she might not be consistent. Generally, it's not a consistent thing. But what I find is once you do get consistent and I'm talking every single day, even Sunday, then you see things move because they don't lose that. They don't lose that every day. They have that foundation that's strong and it, it continues to be built. So really, that's the foundation of it. We introduce three stories. We do the consonants first. And the reason being, um, we do those consonants. And then that very first day that the child is introduced to the vowel, that very first day, they can read words. The very first day. Once they know the ah sound, you have a whole host of words that they can read on the first day. And that really builds confidence. When they can say, hey, wait a minute. Wow. I just read that. Then it builds confidence, and then they're excited for the next sound. So we start with short vowel sounds. We do all of the short vowel sounds first. Then we introduce our friend E helper, and we bring her in, and we, we do those longer vowels, and then we would do blends from there. And there are, there are some readers that I really love that I think are probably some of the best that I've seen, and they're by Shelley Davidow. And they're these sequential readers. There's six of them, and they start with those short vowel sounds. And then they introduce the e-helper and then they introduce those vowel blends. And it really is a very beautiful sequential way to bring the, those vowel sounds in. What I find is that when you follow my method, most families have no problems. When you don't do like the daily work, and it really is daily work. And you know, so many moms struggle with being consistent every day, but it is just daily work and you have to go, oh my gosh, I haven't done our 10 minutes today sit down. It just takes 10 minutes to get started and to get going. And then as they get better and they get stronger, then you can build from there. It's got to start with that 10 minutes and has to be consistent every day. So I don't know if that helps. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing, isn't it? Right. The, um, that consistency that every single day, we're going to do it every single day. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is you introduce all of the consonants first, right? And then go into the vowels. 
Is there a reason for that? So, yes. Be, well, so in Waldorf, they have an order that they introduce the, the consonants and then the vowels. And the order starts with the, the way that the consonants or the way that children first hear sound. So that mum, mum, ma, that, that mom sound. So it starts there. But the reasoning, the deeper reasoning between introducing the consonants and then the vowels is that then you can read right away you are giving the child all the tools and see so you're doing that in your daily practice you're practicing all those consonant sounds not just the recognition of the consonants but the sound that they make you know some of those consonants are tricky and they make two sounds and um, then there's y that makes all kinds of sounds sometimes so we go through all of those we're doing that every day for months before we even get to that first vowel sound. So they're recognizing letters everywhere. Everywhere they go, they're seeing letters and, and they're making those sounds, you know, in their head. And then sometimes when we're driving in the car, I might go, oh, look, there's a C. What sound does that make? And that's their cue to go, oh, that's the tricky one. Sometimes it makes a s sound like city and sometimes it makes a sound like cookie so you know we'll go through all of that on a in a very organic way and and then when we introduce that first vowel they're often like gangbusters they're running they're 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 hungry because they're ready often when people are not seeing that happen i i say talk to me about how old your child is if a child is too young they won't be hungry they will be hungry in a different way and it, it often is because they're seeing an older sibling that is like doing that and they're so I try to make that make something that's specific and special for them. One thing that I did that was super successful with my third child when she was five going on six and she was like, Hey, I want to read. I said, how about we, let's start with uh, music. And we did Jody Messler's um, living music program and, and she was reading music all of a sudden and, and not just recognizing it by ear, but then all of a sudden she picked up reading music and that was this beautiful filler before we were ready to actually start grade one. And, and it served two purposes. You know, she got really good at, at music and is still a beautiful musician today and, and it really prepped her for grade one. So when you're teaching the letters, what are you actually doing to teach that letter? Okay. Are you making, are you drawing? Are you doing Absolutely. it in sand? Doing all of those things. So I would introduce the story. And I truly believe that with those shorter stories in those earlier years, if you can tell it rather than read it, it's better because then it comes directly from you. I will say for those of you that have had like a, found a beautiful fairy tales book that you just love the pictures in, sometimes I will read. We have one, a Grimm's fairy tale edition that, that we just love the pictures in. So we will just, we will read those ones. But in general, we're telling stories. So we would tell the story and then we would draw from the story for the day. And in that drawing, generally there is a, a portion of that letter is in there. So let's use, say the letter J. So we might uh, have a drawing or a painting of a, of a jug. And the, the way that J curves into that jug, you can sort of see the letter within the picture. So we would do that. And then we would also do um, some writing from that day. So they would write J's. Maybe they write 10 J's on a page. And I like in Waldorf, we do sky grass ground with block crayons so that we don't use lined paper generally, but you could use lined paper for sure. Um, but we take the block crayons and we do um, the blue sky, the green grass, and then the red, like a brown for the underground part. So we would talk about, so this letter is in the sky and in the grass 
or this letter is in the grass and in the ground. And I introduce the upper and the lowercase at the same time. Now, in a Waldorf school, often they will just do one. Not always, not across the board. But I do both at the same time because we live in 2019. Children see signs everywhere, and they are seeing an intermixture of the upper and lowercase all the time. So going through and introducing all the uppercase, and then going back and introducing the lowercase is creating work that you don't need to do. You can bring them both at the same time, show the child that they're very interchangeable, that they can use both of those letters, and that they both are the same thing. They both make the same sound. So that's what we would do for a lesson it would be very short, but they would draw or write their, their letter for that day. The second day we would come back and, and this will ring true for Charlotte Masoners. We, we do the retelling and the recall on the second day. And then we would write a summary from that. So for a first grader, that summary would be very, very short, maybe four, four words. And they're often words where they don't know all of the letters yet but it's kind of like a secret because they're learning some of those letters. They might be able to pick out the letters that they're already know, that they already know from everything. And we'll talk about the sounds that they make. Does that make sense? Are they doing the writing or are they, is it copy work? They're copying. Yes. There's one that I have written and then they have written it. So, so yeah, so that's what we would do. And that sort of is a two day cycle. And then but every day we're reviewing what we learned the day before. We're reviewing the sounds of the letter before. So then on the third day, which would be the first day of the second cycle, we'd go, okay, remember that story or the, the letter that we learned yesterday? What sound did it make? Do you want to go over that sound with me? And we might have um, some very colorful, beautiful flashcards, but those are not used um, for, they're not used in a, traditional flashcard sense, like what is letter is this kind of thing. It's more brought as part of a review. So it's, it's not used to introduce the letter. It's used to sort of um, come alongside and review the letter. And I know it can be hard to go, okay, but what is the difference? But it definitely is different when you're going, let's memorize the letter B versus we're going to bring the letter B, bah, bah, bear. And we might do some poetry from that letter. We might, um, draw it in the air and we might draw it on each other's backs and we might draw it with chalk in the driveway and see if we can walk it and we might draw it in the sand if we live near the beach we might make um we might make breadsticks in the in the shape of the letter b for lunch and and so there's many different ways that you can sort of bring this bring it into this whole space of the child so that they really experience those letters I'm having lots of warm memories about teaching my kids to read. <laughs> Sounds very similar to what I did in an organic way. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is a very organic way. And it's not because I truly believe that children are vessels that already have all of the information in them. We're just drawing it forth rather than poking it into them. We're just drawing forth what they already know. Would you say that the best age to start is in grade one or are you doing anything before then? And what would you do if you have three, four and five year olds demanding sure. to be? Sure. That's a great question. That's a great question. So I always have some sort of lesson for the younger children. I really truly believe because you know, having five children and I know you understand this because you have a lot of children too. When you have the younger ones, they need a piece of you before you go do lessons with the older children. When they get a piece of you, then they're like, yay, my heart feels full. Mommy loves me and I can go play and I don't need to bother her every five seconds. When we don't take that time, then we're, you know, 
cutting 400 apples during the day, getting 600 drinks of water, changing a bunch of diapers. But really, if we could just give them that piece of us first. So I tell a story doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, introducing letters or anything, but that is their lesson. They come together for a lesson. And what I tell my children and teach them from a very young age is we respect each other's lessons. So I'm doing lessons with the younger children, which is really just a story, maybe some circle songs and some finger plays. And then they go because they've had that piece of me. Then I move on to the older children. So that allows that space of Everybody gets that lesson. Everybody gets the time that they need. And I feel like I've connected with each child and it really allows for um, that space of just, uh, just feeling good the way, you know, you know how they feel when they're just, you know, they're happy, go lucky because they feel like they're full of every, all of mom's love. And, and that's really what we're aiming for. I really don't bring anything academic at all until, um, until first grade or close to first grade. So in our, um, in our Waldorf Essentials kindergarten, the second half of K2, so in Waldorf, we have two years of uh, kindergarten, the year from five to six and the year from six to seven. So the second half of that K2, we will bring in um, some fairy tales and start doing the recall process. Just, just getting started. Like, so tell me about that story. We won't write anything down. We just talk about recalling the story and, and that allows for them to start get their, getting their, the motor turning in their head about remembering. We always let something go to sleep before we do that recall because they will remember much more if they've had an opportunity for it to go to sleep than they will if you ask them right afterwards. So that would be the only thing that we would do like before first grade. Uh, what are the most common problems that moms come to you with and what's your advice for it? Sure. Like with regards to reading or just in general? Reading. <laughs> okay. That's well, really actually, you could do in general too because it'll, it'll all tie together, right? In general, it will. However, so a lot of, often my questions are, how do I get my husband on board? You know, how do I wrangle several children and teach lessons at the same time? And oh my gosh, my child is, is in second week of first grade and doesn't know how to read yet. <laughs> That's kind of like the big ones. Oh no. Or they'll, they'll read the curriculum as we um, request that they do it for planning. And they'll be like, wait a minute, they're not going to read until after Christmas. <laughs> and so then they get stressed out because they have um, maybe a mother-in-law or their husband that they're trying to appease. And, and so I, I spend a lot of time gently reminding people that you don't teach a child to potty train and expect them to be dry the next day. <laughs> that you, just like, just like potty training, reading is a process. And it's a process that most of us as adults are still going through. Like, for instance, yesterday we were looking through a book, um, a biomes book uh, for my older child and we're going through it. And I looked at a word and I said, Samuel, that's my, my seventh grader. I said, I do not know that word. You're going to have to give me like five minutes to like sound it out, make sure I've got it right. Consult with Google to make sure that Google, that I have it right. You know, because we are still learning. There are always, there are always those pieces that we're going to have to stop and sound out or, or check out, you know, the, the way the vowels blend. That's, those are skills that we're starting when they're in first grade that we're still doing when we're in our 40s, 50s, and 80s. It's, it's just part of life. And so showing your children that, hey, I'm not above sounding a word out. I don't have to know what it is. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing for them to see because then they realize, hey, wait a minute, mom. Mom knows a lot, 
but she might not know everything and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. In that younger, those younger years, they still think we know everything. And about nine years old, they don't think we know a lot at all. Then they're really challenging us a lot. But um, with regards to the biggest question surrounding reading, it often is, um, am I doing this right? I'm worried that they're not going to keep, you know, retain from day to day. And that's where we talk about, well, you've got to do like, once you start down that reading path, you can't be sporadic about it. If you want, if you want true, like if you want reading to occur, you can't be sporadic about it. And it's, it's the same as you would not expect to take your 16 year old out and drive with them five minutes here and then wait two months and then drive with them again and then wait three months and drive with them again and then expect for them to sit for their driver's ed test. You would not expect to, um, you know, to do anything. You wouldn't expect to like want to do watercolor painting and, and practice a little bit here and a little bit there and then want to be this famous watercolor artist. It takes practice and it takes time. So reading is the same. Reading is the same. So once I get moms on board with, hey, I need to actually do this every day. This, this is a regular basis. Then they can actually get dad on board. When dad sees, oh, she's serious. That's usually what I tell people when they say, how do I get dad on board with anything? I go, well, show him that you're serious. Show him that you are actually doing this and that you are doing lessons every day and you're not just talking about fairies and gnomes all day. You, you have to sort of bring in that, 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 that help from dad and, and, and elicit that, that from him and just say, hey, I really, I really could use your help. Could you sit down with Susie Q and just listen to her read to you for five minutes? and get him in there helping. When I was teaching the third child to read, um, I was divorced and my ex-husband was not very cooperative often, but I said to him, Hey, she's going to be at your house. You got to read every day. And she'd come back and say, we didn't read every day. And so I'd have to say to him, listen to me, you're going to be part of this. Either she's coming home to read for her 10 minutes a day, or you're going to read with her for 10 minutes a day. And so then he was like, oh, wait a minute, because she's going to tattle on me to a lawyer if I don't actually do what I need to. So he would just, he would get going with the reading. That's a great way to get anybody, whether it be an ex-partner, a grandparent, anybody on board. So, you know, it takes a few minutes to say, okay, this is what I expect from them. I expect for them to try. If they can't get the word, then let's you sound it out with them. So you can just sort of coach people on, on how to sort of help you with that, that process. Does that answer your question? I, I think that's great. Um, I think a, a big thing is consistency is that Every single day, you just need to keep doing it. Even if, and Jennifer and I were talking about this previously, Previously, even if you don't see something, anything happening. Oh, yes. Still. You won't see. There will be days, weeks, and months that you see nothing happening. And you will say, nothing is happening. Why aren't we moving forward? You have to keep going. Because we assume that, I mean, reading is about growing connections in the brain, right? And we, we can't see that happening. And we assume that because there's no outward sign of it, then it's not happening internally. But the reality is children are just a, you know, they're just a growing mess of stuff happening inside. And it's impossible for us to always see everything that's going on coming out. And I, I think that's probably the hardest part about homeschooling for parents is the patience. It takes patience to be a homeschooling parent. I agree. I totally agree. Because Really what generally tends to happen is no change, no change, no change. Who 
Ooh, then they take off. And, and it, and it happens in such like giant leaps. Sometimes we go, I can't believe I doubted. Like, why, why did I doubt so much? Because wow, look at them now. And when it doesn't, and there are struggles, we know that by being consistent, that we can say to, you know, that therapist or that, that doctor that's helping us, this is what we've been doing every day. That's the, and that's one of the reasons why I talk to moms so much about consistency is you really cannot deem there being something wrong until you've done the consistent work. Then you, then you can go to somebody and say, okay, this is what we've done and something else has got to be wrong or some, there has to be another struggle. I remember my son's speech therapist because we made speech therapy a huge priority in our home when we finally realized we couldn't solve the problem on our own. We were doing a lot on our own, but when we finally sought outside help and we were just like, okay, so we do our speech therapy for our 10, it was 10 minutes. It took 10 minutes to go through whatever was sent home and uh, 10 minutes every day. And, and my husband and I traded off and my older daughter would help. Um, my two sons were actually doing it together. And I remember going in at some point in time and telling my speech therapist we had run out of funding from our insurance and how much longer did she think it was going to be because I needed to be budgeting. And she said, she said, I will Mm -hmm. send you home with a binder and I trust because you are one of the few parents who have done what you needed to do every day. And because you're doing it every day, your son is another couple months and you will never know that he had a speech impediment and she was right and it always surprised me that that the thing that led most to the success of my boys overcoming their speech impediments was just that we did the exercises 10 minutes every day and they don't actually even remember they have no memory that we spent six months doing that stuff they just know that yeah they listen to videos of them and they're like i talk like that I'm like, yeah, yeah, you did. But yeah, that little bit. It's really amazing what that little bit of consistency will do. You know, I think that often we live in such a busy time and we're, we're running here, there and everywhere. And those of us who have several children, we're trying to meet the needs of all those children. But just that 10 minutes is so huge. And it tells the child too, I, I think it nourishes more it nourishes in a few ways. Yes, it nourishes those making those connections in the brain, but there is heart brain coherence. We, you know, we, we've known for years that there's neurons in the brain, but there are also neurons in the heart. And when that heart and brain coherence gets going, then there's a different level of intelligence. There's this emotional intelligence from the child that comes and that healing process of, wow, mom is taking this time with me. I must be very important to mom that I'm taking that she's taking this time with me because I know how busy she is. Do you know how many times my children have said, Hey, don't you, wouldn't you rather go fold laundry? (laughs) I'd say, Nope, (laughs) this is your time. This is a time that we're spending together. Oh, I'd rather you go fold laundry. I know, but I love you so much that we're spending the next 10 minutes only doing this. That's awesome. I love that. So at what point do you say we need outside help? Oh goodness. That's such a loaded question and it's going to be very different for everybody. Um, So when do we need help? Again, I am not on the bandwagon of let's help your three-year-old or your four-year-old. I struggle with moms that, that 
argue for their child's limitation. I struggle with them because, and I'm not saying that, that the diagnosis is a wrong thing. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I struggle with it because once we have a diagnosis, then there's a reason that this is happening. And when there's a reason that this is happening, mom's fight goes away. Mom allows then. And, and I know that's sort of really hard for some people to hear, but I, I remember myself when um, my oldest son got a diagnosis, I was like, phew, goodness, it's not my fault anymore. And we have to get out of that mindset of it being our fault and more of about in the mindset of being, how can I help? What can I do next? And not stopping, not stopping that, that space being the, the mother bear that you had been before you knew the diagnosis. You want to continue to be in that space. So I do not, I'm not an advocate of, of any early intervention like that because I believe that when we take the time to teach reading consistently, most children will learn to read. Most children. And there are children that are going to struggle. I was a child of dyslexia. I read at five. And I think that actually stunted me and made it harder later. It made it harder for me later in that um, my comprehension was garbage, mostly because I was being asked to read things at five that I, had, I couldn't developmentally comprehend. And so I do believe that there were things in my brain that were like, oh, I just can't, I, I can't do that. I don't understand it. And so that framed, that framed how I went. It wasn't until I was in college that um, I went to a professor of mine. It was a political science class. I went to a professor of mine and I said, I've got this dyslexia thing going on. He said, and, and like, how is that? How is that the reason why you're struggling in my class? And I, I remember thinking, well, that's just because, and he said, no, that is not the reason why you're struggling in my class. You are struggling in my class because you are allowing the dyslexia to take, to, to be the problem rather than finding the solution. So solutions that I found from that were I would record his lectures. I would attend them, record them, listen to them when I was studying and go through. I had to find ways to overcome that rather than it being an excuse, rather than it being a, this is my reason why I can't do this. And, and it took him, it took somebody that I really respected telling me, no, I'm sorry, I won't accept that. That doesn't mean that we um, don't make allowances for our children that are struggling. That doesn't mean that at all. What that means is we don't ever allow them to make that their excuse. It can be a reason that you, they have to work harder. It can be a reason that we have to do something else. That can be a reason that we have to look for another program or look for some other intervention, but it should never be an excuse. You know, my oldest son is on the autism spectrum. Um, I know they don't do the Asperger's diagnosis anymore, but that's the diagnosis he got at nine years old. So that's the one we're sticking with. Um, you know, he has always known, we've always had this conversation about, you've got to work a little bit harder than everybody else. And once they know that, then they will be hungry for it. But they have to know it. They have to know that they're going to need, need to work a little bit harder. So I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. I don't think that question can actually be answered, you know? I, I think you're probably right. Right, because for every, every person, it's going to be different. So I know that for us, um, when I finally said, okay, 
we need more help. Um, we had been doing, working with the letters, just a few letters, since July, and this was mid-September, and um, I hadn't been doing the writing consistently, and that's one thing that Melissa pointed out to me, and that is super, super important, right, because it's also part of the multisensory. There's a connection between the writing and the memorization of the sound. They have to have it all. It all has to come together. Right. So we started doing that. Um, and when I said, this is, this is beyond me, is when we had been working on the letter F all week. And we weren't just doing 10 minutes. We were doing 15 minutes. We were doing it 20 minutes. Sometimes we were doing it twice a day. And we were doing it throughout the day. And we were doing um, everything we'd see that started with the, the sound F we would point it out. You know, that's a fork. That's a fort. That's whatever. Um, we were drawing it. We were doing it in chalk and on the driveway. We were um, making the F into a fairy. We were, we were doing all sorts of things. And then on the last day, I think it was, it was either Thursday or Friday. So we had been doing F consistently all week. We had um, spent another 15 or 20 minutes that day making F out of forks. And Lexi would say, Lexi's my daughter, she would say, F starts with fairy. You know, she's getting that backwards. And that's also, that's common with dyslexia, which I found out later. But she, we erased it, we circled all the Fs on the whiteboard. And, you know, we just did everything. And she was saying the F sound and she was saying the Fs and she was writing it. And then we switched to memory with the six letter cards that we had been doing. And I went through every single card with her. And then we turned them over. She turned over a pair and then turned over an F. And I said, what's that? And she looked at it. And she said, I don't remember. It's the one that we learned today. And I said, what's the name? We, spent, we just finished this. What's its name? Can you tell me its sound? And she just was so sad. And she said, I don't remember. Oh, I'm going to cry. Okay, so that's when, that's when I, I knew this is, this is not your typical, I'm forgetting it from, you know, a couple of days ago, and I need to be reminded. She was having trouble remembering the sounds and the letters that we had been doing for a while, you know, for 15 minutes just that morning, and five minutes later, she couldn't remember anything about it. So, and that was also not in isolation. The, there's a lot of other things that we had noticed too, so we had it in the back of our mind. And and I wouldn't also say that, you know, not every child's going to be like that. So I'm not saying that that's when, that that's when everybody should do it. That's just when we saw. What other things, because you said that wasn't in isolation, and I want to stop you for just a minute, because that alone would not have made me say, I need help. Right. So what other things, and because you, you said that wasn't in isolation, what other things would you say were giving you cause to struggle? Um, we had done all last year, for six months, we had done a phonemic awareness curriculum, and she couldn't do any blending. We had tried other curriculum before that, um, Logic of English, and she couldn't get past four, the lesson four. She couldn't hear, like she could take apart sound words like cowboy, take take off the cow, what do you have? She would say boy. But if you said take off, um, say meat, and she would say meat, and then we'd say meat without mm, she cannot do it. She can't hear it. And we worked on that for a long time. Um, she couldn't do that. 
when she's adding or when she's doing numbers, she doesn't remember the numbers either. So it's not just the letters in isolation, it's the numbers. When she counts, when she's doing math, if you ask her what two plus two is, she cannot tell you that two plus two is four. But if you ask her that I have two lizards and you catch another two lizards, how many lizards have you caught? She can tell you four because that's concrete. It's that number, the numerals, right, that she has trouble with. And I would just stop you really quick. I would also look at multiple parts math. Okay. So I would look at Wal the way Waldorf teaches math because it's not just two plus two is four. I ask, what is four? Right. Four is. Two plus two, four is three plus one, four is four times one, four is two times two, four is many, many things. It helps with that concrete, oh, wait a minute, four is much more than just two lizards and two more lizards. Four is more. Right now we're, we're struggling to find a math curriculum, so I definitely look at that because we were using the Charlotte Mason math curriculum last year and it wasn't working. And I think it, Mostly it's because of the language because she had a really hard time understanding what we were what I was asking um, And there's other things like if we would tell her to go put this on you know Go put this on the table. She would put it under the table Or if we would tell her to put it under the table She would put it on top of it. You know, she was getting that mixed up It's like the left and right and she would flip the M's and W's And how old is she Marjorie? She's eight She's eight. Yeah. So you notice these these struggles got worse as you as you were pushing more with reading, or you just no. noticed them more. We've always noticed this, and I I kind of I sequenced them, I guess when we noticed that she was having troubles with reading too. You know, then I would say, oh, and this she also does this, and maybe it's all tied together. So, but yes, we've always noticed that she's always had struggles with, with language. Um, she had speech therapy when she was a child because she wasn't speaking. She didn't, she didn't even say my name until she was almost three. And it's all tied together. So I would say for any parent, like if you were to come to me as a client, one of the things that I would say to you is don't pigeonhole other children because that's what mm. tends to happen. Right is that mom sees it in one child and then she assumes that all of the children have it. Now, while there are often, there are more than one child, there generally is more than one child in a family that has dyslexia, that doesn't mean all of them will have it. It doesn't mean all of them will struggle and it does not mean all of them will struggle the same way. Right. My, I've got two older kids. One of them was diagnosed through the school well, not with dyslexia, but with a specific learning disability because they don't diagnose dyslexia through the schools. His struggles were completely different. He had trouble with uh, writing, and he was held back in first grade by the school because he couldn't read, but then he could read, and he was fine. But it was the writing for him. Yeah, so definitely agree with that. Not not all kids have that same the same struggles. And, you know, it's interesting. Interestingly, in Waldorf, they write before they read. And so the, that, that sort of cements a lot of that together. They're doing this writing before they're reading, and it's okay that they're not writing, reading what they're writing. They're just doing this writing first because it gives them that other sensory space of bringing those letters into them. And, oh, my gosh, they mean something. I remember the day my daughter said, oh, the letters make words, and the words make sentences. And the sentences make paragraphs and look at this book is full of letters. So it's like this aha, these aha moments that happen, but it usually is very sequentially.
Right. What age was she when she did that? Um, she was probably, we were probably halfway through first grade before she was like, oh, now I'm understanding. Ah, see, that's interesting because my older daughter had that same moment at about 12. Even though she could read, she did not connect that the letters stood for sounds that made words. So there's a struggle there. No, most children, most children will make that connection if they haven't already made it in first grade because they, we live in a society that's inundated with letters everywhere. They haven't already made it in first grade. They'll make it sometime, sometime in first grade generally before they're eight generally. So we can answer the, uh, the question, when do we need outside help? And, and I think some of it has to go with when you as a parent are feeling that you can't handle this situation, right? As soon as you feel like, and I know that's been your struggle all summer, Marjorie, right? Is trying to figure out how to approach this. Uh, what can you do? You feel like you've done everything and, and don't know where to turn anymore. I think that's the time when a parent needs to call for outside help. And whether that's, you know, whether you find someone who coaches like Melissa or, or you, you turn to expert advice, that's what we did with my son. I, you know, he'll outgrow the speech impediments. Like most children outgrow them, outgrow them. I waited, he's nine. And then I was feeling like I, I can't help anymore. I'm beyond my own personal knowledge and limits. Um, and I also think that the other thing we have to do is how much is this affecting the child? Absolutely. In my son's case, his speech was affecting his interaction with some of his playmates who were telling him they didn't want to, like to his face, telling him they didn't want to play with him because they couldn't understand what he was saying anymore. And then I realized I've done as much as I can. He's now experiencing negative consequences from, from the two of us not being able to figure this out. So then I need to get outside help. And I know that's also been Marjorie's you know, she's had a summer where Lexi's feeling sad. She's feeling sad that she can't remember what the F is. And, and so I think that all of that comes into play. So there is no right or wrong answer. And you can find people on both spectrums, you know, people who got very early intervention and will swear that that's what's made the difference. And then you will have people like me who had much later intervention and my son is doing okay. Though I ask myself late at night sometimes, if I'd gotten earlier, would he be doing better or would it be easier not even better, but would it have just been easier for him? There are no right or wrong answers here. And, and I, I just think that as parents, we have to know we're doing the best that we can. I agree. And I think we have to really just think about um, our own stress level plays so much, you know, in how our children are receiving things. So if we are in a place where we have had too much, we don't feel like we can bring to them what they need. That is also the time when you go, okay, I need, I need somebody else whether it be a reading tutor, whether it be going the whole route of finding a diagnosis, all of that, but separating yourself, loving yourself and your child enough to separate yourself so that you can show up as the mom that you want to rather than the mom that is frustrated and angry and upset at your child. Yeah, because that's not helping anybody. No. <laughs> so one last question, Melissa. What non-reading parts of the life curriculum, school day, whatever, would you say definitely don't skip that would support their reading indirectly? Because I know as moms, right, we tend to say she's having trouble reading. Let's spend a lot of time on reading and push everything else out because reading is what's important. And I actually would say the opposite to somebody who's telling me that their child is struggling. I would say, do your 10 minutes a day, work up to 20 minutes a day. Do not do more than that because they get to a point where you're not going to put anything else in there. 
That's just not going to help. So things that like within the Waldorf curriculum, we do um, handwork and there it's prescriptive. So it starts with knitting in first grade for a reason. Knitting with the knitting needles crosses the midline. So that midline crossing gets going your brain. And that brain um, interaction then helps with reading. So I always do handwork first. We do, especially in first grade, we do handwork first and then we work on, um, on our reading practice and our main lesson. Knitting the not continental way, you have to do the old school way where you're wrapping because it requires them to use both sides of their brain. So don't skip that. Um, I wouldn't skip any kind of movement. Uh, often we go, oh, we're just going to stay in. We're not going to go on a walk today. You can't go outside. We're going to just focus on this. But really and truly movement is closely linked to how well they're doing in school. So they need that movement. They need to run and climb and jump all of those things and move their whole body together so that they really and truly can feel like they're in their body ready to work. I do that first thing in the morning too before we do any schooling. So handwork, um, definitely movement. And, um, and don't forget that just because they're learning to read, they still want to be read too. I think that's such an important link. I think as, especially in, you know, I, I, I can't speak for cultures outside of North America, but especially in American culture, I see moms that, that stop reading to their children after they learn to read. And every child likes a story. That's how they make those connections. And those story connections are beautiful and help them with their reading as well. So I wouldn't skip any of those things. I would get really good at making a planner so that you can fit in all the things that you need to fit in and that you're not skipping those important things. That's lovely. I think I would also add music. Oh, absolutely. Music for sure. For sure. And, you know, teaching, learning an instrument um, learning an instrument will help with reading as well. It will, all of those things as they're learning by ear because, you know, language is, is so multifaceted. It's hearing, it's speaking, it's writing, it's all of those things. So all of those things working together are what we need to be able to bring them language in a healthy way. Did you have anything else to add, Jennifer? Miriam? I have a question. It doesn't relate to us because neither of my children were early readers. We taught them the Waldorf way right on schedule seven and eight. That's when they began. And then they had that boom, just like you said. But I see a lot on the online forums about children who naturally pick up reading just from being read to each day. What would your recommendations be for children who are reading very early? And there's a lot of stuff like three and four. That happens often. That happens often. And moms will come to me and say, what should I do? Oh, no. Should I make them stop? And I say no. You know, in a, if you were to take your child to a Waldorf school, the Waldorf kindergarten teacher might say, oh, we got to stop that. We got to quiet that down. Home is so different. So I, I'm really careful to not – I don't want to shame anybody. I, I think that, hey, your child cracked the code. That makes your life easier as a homeschooling mom. However, I would be very, very careful with what they're reading because that comprehension is such an important part. There are things that they're developmentally just not ready for. And I think that's really the biggest struggle. When you have a child that reads at three or four, you cannot hand them the dictionary. You cannot hand them, you know, quantum physics. You cannot hand them something that's really heady because 
that will get them out of balance. So you want to make sure that you are only bringing to them things that, that they can understand. And I know I will have mom say to me, but you don't understand. Little Johnny understands quantum physics. And I say, I understand, but little Johnny also needs to run and jump and play and learn how to paint and let's knit and let's do some other things that really engage the, the heart level faculties, not just Johnny's brain all the time. So we want to be very balanced in, in what we're teaching. But we re also really want to focus on stories and books that they're wanting to read from the library that are not so heady. So I keep them out of the, out of the older kids section. I keep them out of the early reader section. I keep them in that picture book place as much as possible. Those are going to be books that are going to be geared toward three, four, fives. They're not going to be geared toward the eight, nine, tens that are you know, already reading that are already in that next space. They're going to be geared toward that developmental level. And we really want to be careful with that. Thank you. And a lot of moms will still argue with me. They'll still argue with me. I had a mom say to me, but I was reading Tolstoy at four. And I said, and <laughs> it's okay, but we're not going to go that route. Let's just slow things down. We're not keeping them from reading. We're just making sure that everything that they're reading is developmentally appropriate. Mine are both reading. We're still in the picture book section. That's their favorite. It's still my favorite. It, it really is this space of um, so fun to watch. Like I'm watching my daughter that it, and she's the last. So there's like bittersweetness, but she's eight. She turned eight in, in April. She's a preemie. So she's a little, you know, it's probably closer to eight than eight and a half at this point. And she's at that place. And all of you know it where they know something's not true, but they just want to believe it so hard. It's so hard. Like the conversation we had on a walk yesterday about wouldn't it just be fabulous if Harry Potter was real? Wouldn't it just be so fabulous? And I said, you know, honey, in your imagination, anything can be real. And we want to like foster that space. But man, when they, they know that, that the earth is hard and firm beneath their feet, but the sun shines bright above, you know, that understanding that, hey, I have to come to the, down to the space. I can still have all of the, the love and the enjoyment and the imagination that I want in my head. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, fun place to be. I like to treasure that space because it leaves. It leaves after nine. I'm like, stop it. No, we don't want you to leave. They start to get jaded after that. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. I did want to say, Melissa, thank you so much. I wanted to tell everybody that Melissa was so inspirational to me, especially when my daughter was younger and still now. And I feel like I am such a better parent and homeschool teacher, even though we do not follow the same method because of what I learned from Melissa. Thank you, Marjorie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I was just sitting here thinking, I wish I could go back in time because I would love to... Aww. I would love to have met you years ago and learned from you. And yeah, Thank you. yeah, so glad that you were here. So glad to meet you. Thank you so much. So let's do our nature minute really quickly. Um, right now, we still have not gotten any rain. The east side of the valley is flooding. I've already seen videos. The, the streets are actually flooded with water running down in rivers. And we still right here are getting nothing. We've gotten a quarter inch all summer long. But the lizards are coming out because it's cooling off at night now. So even though we haven't seen any rain, anything blooming, the animals um, and the reptiles know that the weather is changing. 
and their activity is different. So we know that winter is coming. Miriam. Finally, finally cooled off here in Alabama. It was low 90s and 80s this week. And uh, <laughs> the leaves are just starting to change. And we're hoping this year, the last few years, they have fallen so fast. We didn't get to see the colors. But this year, they're finally starting to turn the bright reds and yellows. We're, we're hoping before they too many more fall, they'll change. I saw a hummingbird the other day. I hadn't seen one since we moved into town. I miss them so much. We used to have so many at our old house. And I saw one. I thought it was a big bug at first because there are some big bugs down here. I, I used to live in Alabama, I understand. <laughs> Melissa, would you like to participate absolutely. or would you want to no, skip? No, I will not. I will absolutely <laughs> take advantage of that. So I live three blocks from the ocean um, in San Diego. And we have, today is another beautiful, they always sort of tease that every day is a beautiful day in San Diego. We have about 260 days of sun. And today it's probably a, a 78 degrees outside, which is a little warm for me. I'm all ready for it to be 73, 74. On our walk uh, yet last night, we, um, so we walk always to the water and um, we're so, um, just breathtaking at the pelicans. We have pelicans, but you can only see them when you're right at the beach. They don't come inland at all. And I mean, and we're like 150 feet inland. So we're not inland very far, but they don't come in inland at all. So if we want to see the pelicans, we have to go there. And I always marvel at how large they are. And what we noticed last night was it looked like a young pack of, a young flock of, of pelicans because they looked smaller than the ones had earlier in the summer. So we have a new flock of pelicans that are probably going to be flying a little farther south at some, time, some point soon. But goodness, if they don't look like um, dinosaurs, pterodactyls flying through the sky. So that's, that's our, we're always marveling at that. That's our nature minute. Um, my neighbor is a, a birder and a photographer. So she takes beautiful, beautiful uh, photos of birds, but she also works really hard to create this uh, environment that is welcoming to birds. And so I spend a lot of time learning from her and trying to assist because we're right beside each other so that we can have double the space. And I was over there the other day and we were just sitting uh, watching some of the birds in the backyard. And she has a blue jay that she has watched all summer raise a family. But this blue jay has a leg that obviously was broken at some point in time. So the blue jay has no control over the leg and the leg just hangs right down all the time. It doesn't go up. So when it's flying, its little leg flaps in the wind. And, um, and I, just, I just thought how beautiful that this animal is overcoming uh, its difficulties and raising a family and, um, and just how beautiful to watch that happening in nature. And I also thought how wonderful that she has created the time and the space that she intimately knows her birds by name and knows, you know, saw this bird and has followed this bird. I just, I just thought when my kids were little, what an inspiration it would have been to have had this resource in my neighborhood that we could have gone and spent time with and learning from. And so for any of you that are out there, look for some inspiration, um, find people who, who love birding, who love being in nature and, and take some time to learn from them. Great advice, Jennifer. Uh, thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us today. Thank you. It was wonderful to have you on. Thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening, everybody. And join us for our next episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Wildwood Curriculum Podcast, Stone Chats. For more information about our free secular and inclusive curriculum based on the works of 19th century educator Charlotte Mason, please visit us at wildwoodcurriculum.org.